All right, well, let's jump into Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. I want to, because this is such an important passage, read the passage through and then get the main idea, okay? I feel like sometimes I, I, get, I get so um, into the details that we miss the obvious overview. And the reason I do that is because I know you guys are, you've, you've been in church for a long time and you know a lot of stuff already. But I want to make sure we get the basics tonight and then we'll go into the details. Does that make sense? All right. <laughs> Starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, that's angels. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. All right, that's good for now. So what is happening here? Um, in the year of, uh, just the overview, okay? In the year of King Uzziah's death, King Uzziah reigned for over 50 years, and this was a revolutionary time. This was a time of crisis and what we call in English a crisis of sovereignty when a king dies and there, there has to be another king. The reason we say long live the king is because the longer the king lives, the more peace, the more prosperity, the more stability. But in times where a regime is about to switch, and some of you know about that more than others, right, Samuel? Like when a regime is about to collapse, in times of political crisis, um, we can all feel a little unsteady and a little um, scared about the future, right? Our country obviously has a crisis of sovereignty because we are reigned, ruled by children and a sexual deviance and, and have been for, you know, a good 50, 60, 150, 200 years. No, I don't know. I don't know how long it goes back, but it's <laughs> we're not doing good. We're not doing good. Um, so in these times of crisis, it's important to have a vision of the Lord on the throne. You know, we say in times of difficulty, we say the Lord is on his throne. What do we mean? What, do we, what we mean is that no matter what is happening here with political regimes, that Jesus, the Lord, is still ruling and reigning over everything. And, and Isaiah sees Christ in the heavens ruling, and that allows him to know that things are going to be okay, that he is in control. Amen? And so we, that's why we say very often the Lord is on his throne. But when he sees, and this is very important, when he is taken up into the heavenlies, by the way, on Sunday mornings, who else has been taken up into the heavenlies? John, that's right. It's a prophetic thing. When he's taken up into the heavenlies, what does he see there? If y'all can help me, you can see it there in verse 1. What does John see with his eyes? He sees the Lord upon his throne. 
Okay, that's God upon his throne. What else does he see? Yeah, he, he, his robe, just the tip of his robe, fills the entirety of the heavenly temple. Meaning that to really wrap our minds around God is impossible. The best we could do is barely understand a little bit of him, see just the tip of his robe. He's incomprehensible um, to humans ultimately. Okay, but then what happens when he sees the Lord, and this is what I want you to really understand. Um, He sees the Lord, and what does he say about himself? Woe is me. All right, he says, for I am lost. Now, we don't exactly know what that means, but basically Isaiah, when he comes into contact with the real God, he feels uh, scared, uh, condemned, damned. And is disintegrating in himself. I am lost. Woe is me. I'm cursed. Now that he sees God, the true God, his first impression is that he is damned. Okay? Now, who here has felt that way before? When you, I promise you, you're not a Christian unless at some point you recognize that because of your sins... You are not right with God and that you are in some sort of judicial trouble. Does that make sense? Okay. Judicial trouble by, by God. You're, his law condemns you. You're in trouble. Why is, Isaiah, why is Isaiah afraid and feels like he's going to be in trouble with this God? What, in what way is he unclean? He says his lips. Now, there's a reason for that. He's going to be called by God to, to use his, his, his mouth. But honestly, who here feels like they have a clean mouth? But where, where does the mouth, when the mouth speaks, where does it come from? It comes from the heart. So if his mouth is unclean, that means his heart is unclean. You understand what I mean? So he knows that in the presence of God, a holy God, because his heart is unclean, and what comes out of his heart comes out of his mouth, and his mouth is unclean, that he is in, in, in grave trouble with God. Make sense? That's the main thing. What is the solution? Well, first of all, who here, let's, let's share some testimonies of who here, at some point in their life, believed they were on their way to hell. Okay, let me, do you all mind if I, we just camp on this for a second? Miss Paula, who, keep your hand raising if you want me to, to talk to you. So that you can really share it. Brother Harold. Yes, without Christ, you are going to hell. You are condemned. Why is that? Is it just the sins you commit or the nature as well? The sinful nature as well. Was there ever a point in your life where you really were truly scared that you were going to be condemned by God? You were, you were legitimately scared about that. Do you remember when that was? 32? Yeah. And uh, what did that feeling of fear and condemnation do for you? It, it compels you in some way, right? <laughs> yeah. And did you believe the water would magically make you right with God? No. 
but you knew you knew about Christ then. Right. <laughs> Do you remember that, Miss Paula? You there was a time where you thought you were going to go to hell. You were going to be damned for your sin. Yeah. And that was not that long ago, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. I can remember as a child being a very afraid of hell. I would have nightmares and there would be the rapture. For those of you who are new to Christianity, the rapture is not real. But when I was a kid, I believed in this superstitious teaching that Christians at, at some point were going to be secretly taken up to heaven all in one big group. And uh, so I was in my psyche, and I would have these nightmares that everyone, the trumpets would blast, and it was the end of the world, and everyone would get raptured, and I'd still be here. I'd be left behind. And I would wake up sweating and terrified that, that I was damned by God because of my sin, even my little childish eight, nine-year-old, ten-year-old sin, which couldn't have, compared to, like, most humans, probably didn't amount to much. But I knew in my nature that there, there was sin, and, that, and, and, and I didn't have any way to pay for the sin. You see what I mean? Um, and uh, now, Samuel, you mind if I ask you a question? Have you ever felt af- afraid that God was going to judge you? I'm sorry? No, not right now, ever in your whole life. Yeah? Yeah. What, um, what, uh, what are the solutions that the world offers for the feelings of condemnation. Therapy. <laughs> Self-love, which is another way of saying suppress those feelings. That's false guilt. You're not condemned. You're fine just as you are. Compare yourself to others, which we call self-righteousness or racism or bigotry, or <laughs> which is just versions of self-righteousness. Uh, like, well, at least I'm not like those people. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm good. When God, when God judges all of us, I'll be like a, a head and shoulders above all the rest of the people. Yeah. Yeah. But you'll still, everyone's still going to hell. Yeah. Get in touch with your consciousness. You're align, if you align your chakras, that, yeah. Yeah. Or but what about, can you, uh, can you, if you feel condemned to hell and you feel like God's going to judge you for your sins, can you give enough money to the poor to, to fix it? Can you uh, make pilgrimages to uh, Idaho or, or Fort Worth or Dallas or wherever, whatever spiritual Mecca? Can you make pilgrimages to get rid of your sin? Can you, uh, you know, say enough prayers? Can you do like Hail Marys and Our Fathers over and over again until God finally, can you do any of those things? No, you can't. No, 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 no. Listen, here, here is the most essential aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot, you cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot climb a ladder into heaven. You cannot pay for your own sins. There has to be a sacrifice. That's the key. There has to be a sacrifice. And that sacrifice has to be worthy uh, and capable of atoning for your sins. Okay, that's the core of the gospel. And the Bible says that God, God's judgment, which is rightly on all of us, uh, 
that even though that was the case, he gave Jesus as a sacrifice so that instead of judging and condemning you, he judges and condemns Jesus as a substitute, as a sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice is capable of accomplishing your redemption. It can bring you back to God, okay? So now let's back to the Isaiah story. Isaiah is in the presence of God. He sees the throne. His, his robe fills the temple. He sees the angels, and he is terrified, like the temple is shaking. These, this is imagery, okay? This is a vision. It's imagery. But he is shaking. He is internally terrified in the presence of God. And the reason is because he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I'm unclean. I'm defiled. And in, the, in biblical worldview, if your lips are unclean, it means your heart is unclean because out of the heart does the mouth speak. Okay? So what is the solution? I, I, I want, um, I want um, a brand new Christians or young people to tell me in these passages what is the solution for Isaiah. If you've been a Christian for more than two years, you cannot tell me. Okay? Or if you're over 18, you can't tell me. All right? I want, look at verse 6 and tell me what is the solution. How can Isaiah be in heaven with God if he's an unclean person? The, it's in verse 6 and verse 7. Jude, you're not, your dad's a pastor. You're not allowed to say it. You don't even have your Bible out. Shame. Six and seven. Samuel, I want you to tell me. You got verses six and seven? Look it up real quick. And are you, do you know what's happening right now in class? I'm just messing with you. That's from last week. <laughs> Samuel, you ready? Verses 6 and 7. How can Isaiah be right with God? He's unclean. He's, unde- he's defiled. What is the solution? Well, look in verse 6 and 7. He confesses, okay, he confesses his sins. But do, if you confess your sins, is that enough? Like if, if they say, God, I'm sorry. I'm a murderer. What if I go to the judge? Okay, if I go to the judge, I've killed someone, and I go to the judge, and I say, Judge, I'm sorry. I killed him. I caught him. You caught me. I killed him. Is it right for the judge to be like, okay, you can go free? What would everybody in the, in the courtroom say? <laughs> That's an unjust judge. No, you can't, not just, now confession is important. You've got to be open with God, but there still has to be a sacrifice. There has to be something that pays the cost, that pays the price, okay? And in verses 6 and 7, it's right there. Can you see it, Samuel? Read it and see if you can find it. I know I'm putting you on the spot, and I know that you you trust me, and you're okay with it. (laughs) At least I hope, I hope. Verses 6 and 7. Okay, yes, you see, his guilt is taken away, and his sin is atoned. That means it's paid for. But what, how did it happen? 
This is, this is very interesting. Look at the passage. All right, I'm gonna, now I'm going to pick on someone else. Samuel got us going in the right direction. Somehow Isaiah's sin is taken care of, it's atoned for, and his guilt is removed. He confesses, but then there's the removal of guilt. It's not enough to confess. You've got to have some, some way to get rid of it. Did Isaiah go and do a bunch of good deeds to get rid of it? Is that what he did? Did he, like, uh, you know, pray some prayers, sinner's prayer, you know, mantras? Did he align his chakras and become one with the universe? No. What did he do? A coal touched his lips. A hot coal, like the hot coals on the top of a hookah. Like the hot... (laughs) I learned that that, uh, this week. The hot coals... Now, how can, a, how can a hot coal touch your lips and clean them? It burns them, right? Purges, purifies. It has something to do with where the coal came from. Look right. Where does the coal come from in the passage? It comes from the altar in the temple. Where a, and if an altar has a hot coal on it, that means something has happened. That means a sacrifice has, has taken place on that, hot cult, on that hot altar. You see what I mean? It, recently. It's the sacrifice on that altar, which when applied to Isaiah's sin, removes the guilt. Now, that is just an old, old, old picture. It's a, an object lesson. You don't know what an object lesson is, a picture. An old, ancient, ancient picture that was given to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Isaac, to all the patriarchs, a picture of what God would one day do. One day God would send a sacrifice, and and the execution of that sacrifice and the spilling of that blood would be sufficient to purge guilt and to save people. You see what I mean? It's not a sheep, it's not a goat, it's, the, it's the, what John said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Isaiah is, is saved, is the word we use. He's, his guilt is dealt with because one day Jesus is going to come as the sacrifice on that altar. That altar is just a picture, it's a sermon really, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make sense? Now once he is saved by the sacrifice... His sin is taken care of. Is that the end of the story? Then what happens? What happens then is he hears God talking sort of like, you know, who, you know, who's going to go for us? Like, we need some emissaries. We need some ambassadors. We need some, some, uh, some people to go. I find it interesting that God doesn't even, like, look down at Isaiah and be like, he doesn't say to you go. He's just like, I, I feel like that's kind of how good moms and dads are. You know, they let, their kids, they let their kids step up into it, you know. Who could go for us? Is there anyone around here that could help us out? Right? And Isaiah's like, down here. Look, me, here. That's how you know he's saved. You see what I'm saying? Because he's willing to serve and to give the rest of his life for the one who has purchased his salvation and provided his salvation. <laughs> I just love, here am I. 
Because oh, who doesn't it feel good to be fruitful, to be used by, by God? Little peons like us, it feels good. I, I, who doesn't want, I, want to be, I want my life to count. I want it to matter. I want it to matter. That's why I think it's great. You know, here am I, send me. Now, does God tell him precisely what sort of a task he's going to have before or after he volunteers? It's definitely after. Like, if you ever have some, if someone comes to you and they're like, I need a favor. And you're like, okay, but I'm going to need you to tell me what it is before I agree, right? No, that's not how God works. With God, it's total surrender, absolute surrender, absolute total submission, no negotiables. He, he does not allow you to say, okay, God, everything but this one little thing, okay? Now, you've got to trust him. you just got to trust him with your life, total surrender. You've got to say, here am I, send me, whatever it is. When I told that to my wife whenever she wanted to marry me. I was like, I want someone that can follow me. And she's like, I want, to, I want to follow you. He's like, what if I'm a missionary to Afghanistan? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know. You know, I want someone to follow me. I, I was just messing around. <laughs> I know if that's what God called me, he'd equip her to, and me to be able to accomplish something like that. But I, just, I was just testing it. But God wants people who will worship him and follow him. And he volunteers, and then God tells him the task. Leave everything. Abandon everything. And verse 9, go and say to this people, you're going to be a prophet. You're going to have a particular type of prophetic ministry. It's verse 9. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. You know, what preacher would like that ministry? You're going to preach, and... The only thing that's going to come from your preaching is that people are going to become dumber. <laughs> we are all now dumber for having heard that sermon. Right? You're going to preach, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. When Isaiah clearly understands the difficulty of this task. Now, you'll have to understand Isaiah is probably a young man at this point, and he is probably an educated young man that serves in the court of the king. He knew Uzziah, the leper king. Like, he's not like um, Amos, who was a shepherd out from the country. He's a, he's a, a big, a, a smart, educated person, and he knows what this means. He knows this is going to be a tough task. And so he asked the Lord the, the obvious question, how long, O oh Lord? How long do I have to have this ministry of judgment? You know, how long do I have to preach to a crowd of zero that hates me? Um, and God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. Well, that's a tough ministry, right? You know, we normally judge preachers by how many people go to their church. You know, it doesn't exactly work that way, does it? Because not everybody has the same calling. There's different vocations, right? We judge a teacher by how well people get it. But that's not always, you know, accurate either. You know, Pastor, I really got something out of that sermon. I'm glad, but that doesn't make it a good sermon or a bad sermon. I mean, there's so many factors involved here. You know what I mean? The Holy Spirit has to, be, has to anoint and open up your eyes, etc. 
But then it goes on because it's, this is Isaiah after all. Remember what Isaiah is all about. It's about the, the dramatic pruning of Israel and the salvation of a remnant that would pass on through until the ultimate renewal of the covenant. So it says right here, it says in verse 12, And the Lord removes people far away. Keep on preaching until that. He's going to send them in exile. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. In verse 13, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. See? So what is that? The remnant. That's the remnant. I'm going to cut this thing down to a stump, and then I'm going to burn the stump. And the stump is the seed. It's the, the remnant. It's the, it's the true people. So that's, that's an overview. That really is an overview of the whole book of Isaiah and also this vision. But he has a difficult task ahead of him, a difficult ministry. And, uh, and he can always look back on this time when he saw the Lord on his throne and remember, my ministry is difficult, nobody's listening, but he, Jesus is on the throne. Amen? All right, so that's the overview. Any thoughts or questions on that before we dive into a few things? Marley. Maybe. I, I, I think that um, what, I, what happens to Moses, what happens to Isaiah, what happens to Ezekiel, chapter 1, what happens to John, is something that happened to prophets that had a particular calling. They are raptured up into heaven. In fact, the rapture doctrine really is a uh, confusion of this. Um, and uh, eventually, obviously, Jesus ascends up into heaven totally and literally. But I think that these prophets are given a, uh, a vision in the spirit. What does that mean? No one's really sure. And that they behold um, these things in the heavenlies and in the throne room of God. And then they tell them to us. Now, the new thing about the New Testament is, said, is that it's not just the prophets that would receive visions of the heavenly throne. Hebrews chapter 12, we are all invited to come on up. And to, and to behold the vision of the Lord, the, what um, ancients called the beatific vision. And as we behold the beatific vision in the presence of the Lord, in church, in prayer, etc., we're transformed with unveiled faces from one degree of glory to the next. That's, that's where we can access spiritual power for transformation. And that's why I say, and I think that it's true, why is the church in America shrinking? I think, ultimately, we don't have a vision. We don't, we don't behold the glory. We, don't, we have no transformative power. That's what I mean, even though that's kind of, it's conceptually hard to wrap your mind around. It probably take about 20 or 30 years to start being able to articulate that. It is, you know, the charismatics aren't 100% wrong. They're not totally wrong. Um, they're, they're very right about a lot of things. Um, you know, just not everything. That, I guess that's true of everyone, though, right? Um, I think the rapture, the rapture doctrine, though, is, a, is unfortunate mistake and it, it does come from misunderstanding this misunderstanding this good great question anything else any other thoughts or questions mm-hmm 
the remnant is the stump. Absolutely. It's all over. It's and all of that comes from Isaiah. The, so. the imagery of fire being purging and, and judgment, but also mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's right. Jeremy? Yeah, this is a theophany, is what they call it, an appearance of God. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Good. Real quick, let's look at verse 2, just to pull out a few details here. Notice that in the throne room of heaven, that there are these creatures called seraphim. Seraphim, there in verse 2. Seraphim is plural for seraph. Seraph is singular. Seraphim is plural. And it doesn't tell us how many there were. There could have been a thousand, could have been a million, could have been, you know, a few. I'm not sure. But notice how they are, um, they have six wings. One covers their eyes because even though they're perfect creatures in the presence of God, they still must veil their faces, all right? And two of their wings cover their feet. Feet are symbols of your creatureliness, And so they sort of shield their feet as well. There is a veil between them and God. God is holy, and they are not God. They are separate from God. And then they have to fly. They can't settle and rest in the very presence of God. They are are seraphs, and and a seraph is a messenger angel. They're sent out from the throne as messengers. And um, uh, the other type of angel is called a cherub, or plural cherubim, and they are warrior angels. Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer are three of the cherubs that are listed in, in Scripture. And, and they are depicted as the very throne of God, the wheels of his chariot. So that as he rules in this world, he rules through angels. Who can go? Who can we send? He has ministers. That's how he administrates this realm, is through angels. And now that Christ has become the God-man, he does so also through humans, which is why you see 24 thrones of humans on them in the book of John, and you don't see it here, okay? Um, Another thing you see here is that it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's the Hebrew superlative. That's how we we do that by putting things in all caps, in in all all caps. uh, But they put it, it's like big, bigger, best, holy, holier, holiest. And it is interesting to me that when God is described with this emphasis, it, it nowhere in the Bible says love, love, love. It never says wrath, wrath, wrath. For whatever reason, um, it emphasizes his holiness above, above all of his other attributes. Holiness is essential to who, who he is. Make sense? And, uh, and what is holiness, anyone? He is set apart. Which it's, it's strange to think, why is that such a big deal? You know, you would need Christian philosophers to explain that. But he is unattainable, unapproachable, incomprehensible, transcendent. You don't, you know, just walk up into his business. You can't know him. Right? That, that's, that's why it's, uh, it's crazy to think that there's a lot of people who believe you can figure out with reason 
the ultimate truths of, of nature and reality. Or that if you can look through a microscope long enough, you could finally figure out the meaning of the universe. Right? Or develop an AI. What's, a, what's the AI that... that um, Truth AI. Can we develop an AI smart enough to discover ultimate meaning? No, it's impossible. He is holy. He is other. It has to be revealed. He has to communicate himself to us in order for us to understand, which is why the Bible uh, is given to us. The Bible is given to us so that we can know the one who is completely set apart from us. Right? Are there any other religions where God is completely set apart from us? And not not close and personal. Yeah, uh, I don't know, Sam. What about Islam? Is is Allah like personal in the in the way he's taught in the in the Quran? Like, is, is he is he described as your friend? Can he be a, Can you have a, be a friends with Allah? Can't comprehend. In, that's the we use the word incomprehensible. That's right. Mm-hmm. The Bible describes God that way, incomprehensible. But here's the thing: the Bible also describes God as personal friend that you can know. Mm, yeah, ultimately through Christ, but in in the past through Him speaking through prophets and and Him writing it in a book. And, that's the, weird, that's the thing about Christianity that you have to understand that is different than every other religion on the planet. First of all, the thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion is that you can't go to heaven on your own righteousness. You have to have a sacrifice, okay? And the other thing that, is, that distinguishes it is that God is holy and incomprehensible and transcendent and other, but he's also personal and close and relational and a friend, Right? And, and talks to you and you talk to him. Every other religion in the world, God is either other or personal. What about, what about the, um, like in, uh, in the Greek mythological gods, Zeus and Jupiter, are they wholly other or are they just like bigger versions of us? They're, they're very much like us. They're even described, you make statues of them look like big strong men, right? They're very... What we call the word in that philosophically is imminent. They're very imminent, right? But if you think of like the concept of God in Buddhism, it's like a force. It's some, like we don't really have a word for it, but it's just like totally omniscient, transcendent, incomprehensible force. You can tap into it like... Well, all is, yeah, all is, yeah, all is God. So I think that's one of the things that distinguishes Christianity is that if you were to come up with God, what's God like? You would come up with, like, the Greek gods, real, real like, just bigger versions of us, right, evolved, aliens maybe, or you would come up with, like, a totally just like a force, force God totally other. You would come up with one of those two. But the Bible reveals both are true. And the only way you believe that is if you believe the revelation that comes to us from God instead of your own reason. Right? It's very important. But holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
Total transcendence, unknowability. But what does the, re- the next verse say? The whole earth is full of his glory. So which is it? Is he total? Holy means separate, set apart, incomprehensible. Is he holy or is, the, is earth filled with his glory? It's both. Now in Hinduism, where is God or what is God? Animals are God and nature is God and you're God. All is one. Right, you see that? But in Christianity, no, no. God is totally separate from this creation, but also he reveals himself through creation. The heavens preach sermons about God. And you can see him see his works in nature, and you can even have him speak to your conscience. Isn't that interesting? It's totally, totally different. Um Good. So it's transcendence and eminence, both revealed in the scriptures. Very important. He, he is not a, he's not a bigger version of us, evolved us, and, nor is he totally an, a force, but he is both transcendent and eminent. Good. Um, <clears throat> let's move on as well. Verse uh, 5, I want to show you the pattern. It's another thing to consider here. What is the pattern of everyone who becomes a Christian? First thing that happens... To become a Christian, is it just a decision you make? Yes or no? No, it's a supernatural occurrence in your life that happens um, supernaturally, but also God rearranges your whole life and brings you into that, and, 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 and you wake up one morning as though, okay, how did that happen? Do you, you remember something like that? I, mean, I, was too, I was too little to remember, but you remember that. You're like... Did you, did you ever think, you know what, I'm going to start glorifying God now? Like, did you decide it was you made the first decision? Like, how did it happen? Like, when I was regenerated? Yeah, well, no, when you, just, when you found yourself being a Christian all of a sudden. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, I was on the phone with my sister, and I told her, I was like, I know God, and I, I, I get the God thing, but I, I don't understand, I don't understand Jesus, and we have so you told your sister, I get the God thing. I don't get the Jesus thing. You mean you, you like, perceived something? Yeah. Yeah. All right, quit. You're going to make me cry. All right. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. When did you, but you knew about right and wrong before? Oh, I did, sure. I grew up Catholic. Okay. I grew up, 
Like your feelings of guilt, they came before. There was, oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just, you know, suppress that. Yeah. All right. So what comes first? First. I'm sorry. There's a drawing. But what draws a person to Jesus? Well, the spirit of God does the drawing. What's the first thing that he does? The first thing is the law. First thing is the law. And usually it's one or two things in your life. Usually it's not like all your sins at once, right? For Isaiah, what was it right here? For Isaiah, it was his vulgar mouth or his uh, angry outburst or his bitterness or his gossip. I don't know exactly how he sinned. Um, He recognizes he's really no different than everybody else. Maybe he and his friends told vulgar jokes all the time. I don't, I don't know, I don't know, but some, what convicted Isaiah was the sins of the mouth, right? Um, <clears throat> maybe he was eating, you know, food that he wasn't supposed to or something like that, I don't know. But it was the sins of the mouth. And, uh, and it's different for everybody, you know? You have a sins that, can, that make you feel condemned. So that's how it begins. But then at some point in time, if the Holy Spirit is calling you, you are, you are shown... Um, the sacrifice you're shown the option of jesus dying in your place or paying the penalty for your sins instead of you and you you find yourself believing that that is really good news for you and you'll take it yes lord i'll take that okay that's that's the order law law condemns produces guilt but that drives you to jesus someone has to tell you about jesus and the sacrifice, or you have to read it somewhere on the internet, and he's like, oh, that's why he died on the cross, to deal with this backpack of guilt I have, and, 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 and faith is, you give that to him, I'll take that. That's the order. That's the order happens here to Isaiah, and it happens to every single Christian. Maybe not in as dramatic a way, but it happens to every single Christian, nonetheless. And then, what comes next? The commission. That's right. You become his servant, and he calls you and gives you a vocation he gives you a calling and and that doesn't mean that everyone is a prophet but it means that everyone is now working for king jesus and for his kingdom and that takes time to discover what exactly god has for you in your life right but usually almost always not always but usually it involves marriage and kids and discipling others and church membership and all of those things easy life you know not it is easy you know his yoke is easy a lot of people are afraid to uh, to volunteer for jesus you know here am i send me Isaiah's not afraid but a lot of people are afraid because they think that it's going to be really really hard i'm not saying it's going to be a bed of roses but jesus says hey my yoke is easy are you weary come to me i'll give you rest my yoke is easy it really i'm telling you compared to sl- serving sin it's easy it's way easier <clears throat> good, 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 good. Now, if uh, in the Old Testament, let me move on to another subject here. If in the Old Testament you distorted the sacrificial system, what happened to you? You got executed by God or by people. Something bad happened to you. Let's go through a few times in which they tried to distort the sacrificial system and all the rules regarding that. Do what? 
Well, that, yeah, I mean, that wasn't the sacrificial system. That was a little something different, but yeah, Kevin? Yeah, Nadab and Abihu is a story in the Bible where they go in and they try to do whatever they want to do in the temple. They, they are trying to bring a different fire instead of God's fire. The fire is a symbol of God's wrath that burns up the sacrifice. That's why it's called a burnt sacrifice. When you see burnt sacrifice, that's the one that pictures Jesus. Because you know what you don't do with burnt things? You don't eat them, right? They're not for you. It's for God. So it's totally burnt and totally consumed, completely and utterly. Nobody ate the burnt sacrifice. But after the burnt sacrifice, once the reconciliation with God is restored, then they would have other sacrifices where everyone would share the meat. Fellowship meals, basically. You understand what I mean? But you wouldn't want to, if you made a meal for someone, hey, here's burnt you wouldn't say that. You don't eat burnt. It's not for you. Burnt's for God. So burnt sacrifice, that's the one that, that heals Isaiah. Make sense? But if you, but Nadab and Abihu tried to burn the sacrifice with some kind of pagan fire, not God. Right? So um, essentially they're offering the sacrifice to idols. All right? What are some other stories in the Bible where they mess up the sacrificial system? Can you think of any other? What about um, King Uzziah? He got proud. He thought he could go in there and offer sacrifices. And he's in there screaming at the priest. The priests are like, get out of here. And he's like, I'm the king around here. And he, a leprosy starts to break out on his head. And he dies, the leper king, for his pride. He's a good king, though. You know, I hate to see that it ended poorly, but he was actually a really good king for a while. Saul killed all the priests. That's definitely. Oh, he did the sacrifice without Samuel. That's a no-no. Oh, that's the one you were talking about. So if you messed with the, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, you could potentially be killed, burnt to a crisp. Now, what did the sacrificial system point to? It was a, a picture of the gospel, the story of Christ, that he would be sacrificed for our sins. So what if someone today messes with the gospel, distorts the gospel? They might get real leprosy. Or something, or monkeypox. I don't know. You know, I don't know what the equivalent is today. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Sorry, Miss Pam. <laughs> that was graphic. All right. So you get, uh, you know, you if the, if you died in the Old Testament for messing with the sacrificial system, you can die and be sick and be judged and sent to hell for messing with the gospel today. Absolutely, very important. It's very important to get the gospel right. Very, very important. Uh, listen to what uh, Paul says to Timothy, a young preacher, 2 Timothy 1.14. He says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. All right, if, if, if dad hands you the keys to the family car, you've had your license for two years, you say, hey, hey, hey. You're like, oh, thanks, dad. He's like, oh, mm, mm. Before you get that car, you've got to be reminded of the responsibility. You got to be reminded of the consequences. You better take care of the car. It's very expensive. I'm I'm entrusting these keys to you. You better be responsible with them. Make sense? The gospel is way more valuable than a than a car. And God entrusts to every one of us that deposit. He deposits that into your life and entrusts you with it. And you're not allowed to add to it or take away from it. That would be like a messenger breaking open the message and taking out stuff and adding stuff to it. You have, to, you have to be very, very careful with uh, the gospel and because it is prone to attack and it is very, very valuable 
And it's super important that we guard it for our children. Amen? All right, y'all have a great evening.